Next Chapter Podcasts. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to you. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend. The king of these for Angelo. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. The song is Mrs. Robinson. It's by Simon and Garfunkel from the 68 record Bookends. It's number 234 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What is up, party people? Fleece Army, how are we doing? So good to see each and every one of you. Uh, Have you seen me on the road? Because I'm out there, man. Uh, Last weekend, Vancouver. I will be in Los Angeles this weekend, December 17th and the 18th, doing the jam and shimmy. And then New Year's Eve, I will be at the House of Comedy in Phoenix, Arizona. And then 2024 is already packing out. St. Petersburg, Florida, January 12th and 11th. Dubuque, Iowa, January 19th and the 20th. Bakersfield, California, January 26th and the 27th. February 2nd through the 3rd, I'll be at the Laughing Tap in Milwaukee. February 9th and the 10th, Detroit, Michigan. I'm going to go to Motown. I'm going to do some shit while I'm there, everybody. And then Ontario, I'm coming for you. Toronto and Kitchener. February 23rd and the 24th. All tickets at joshadammyers.com. Oh, yeah. I'm also doing the Comedy Cellar in Vegas in February. And if you're in New York, you can always catch me at the Village Underground or the Stand or the New York Comedy Club most nights. Uh, Usually Sundays through Wednesdays, and then I'm on the road. Uh, Come out. Come to a show, man. It means the world to me, and it means the world to everybody, a part of the show for all the people that subscribe to Patreon. So go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast and pay five dollars which really helps this show and subscribe to the youtube and all of that shit all right simon and g garfunkel and i think i'm gonna start calling them garfunkel and simon garfunkel and simon give me some coffee garfunkel and simon we love them don't we except for you know paul Los Lobos. Remember that episode? Go back and listen to the Los Lobos episode. Uh, F. Paul Simon. Ah, that's in the past. That's in the past. I, I've my mom owned Bridge Over Troubled Water. It, it's the. I mean, the music is incredible. The the, the sound of their voices together, perfect. Um. So yeah, this was a fun one because uh, it came so quickly. I completely forgot that we were doing it that day. And and Jeremiah's like, Josh, uh, you coming on? And I'm like, what? We only had like a half hour with Sandra, and that is our guest, the legend Sandra Bernhard. Uh, she is a uh, comedian, actress, singer, performer. Um, I mean, so many incredible movies. The King of Comedy, just. 
uh, Will and Grace, Broad City. I mean, this is a legend in the stand-up comedy, in the in the entertainment world. Uh, we are very lucky to have her on here. Uh, she hosts uh, Sandy Land Show on Sirius XM's Radio Andy Channel 102. And she's ending 2023 in New York City at Joe's Pub with 10 shows over six glorious nights, December 26th through the 31st, debuting brand new material. Go to SandraBernhard.com for ticket information, and we'll also drop a link uh, in our show notes as well. And let's get into it. Rate, review, and subscribe to The 500. Leave a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. All right, kids. Simon and Garfunkel bookends at 234. I am such, you are just an icon to me. I walk by your poster every day at the comedy store. Um, anytime I perform there, you're, I've always looked up to you as one of the coolest performers and just like, you know, the fact that you're on this podcast, um, for this episode more than anything, it's like, well, what I'm just excited to find out, like, how did you end up on this podcast talking about Simon and Garfunkel of all artists? Well, and you guys invited me to come okay. and talk about right, Simon yeah. and Garfunkel. All right, there you go. One I plus one equals two. All right. I didn't seek you out. <laughs> However, that said, I um, there's a few very important Simon and Garfunkel connections for me. Number one, it was the first concert I ever went to. Ooh. When I was 12 years old, my friend Diane Adler and I went and to see, see them in Phoenix, and her dad took us to see them. And um, it was an amazing show. So, I mean, By I, yourself, I Wait, you went by yourself. Your parents no, were okay with that? No, okay, there, no, there. no, I went with my friend Diane Adler and her father, Harry her Adler, took us. Oh, okay, I didn't hear the father part. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, we did not go by ourselves. And it was an incredible night and um, my, the first concert I ever went to. So needless to say, Simon and Garfunkel have been a huge backdrop to my life. And I'm just in the pocket of that time when they had so much impact. And I was just saying that when I was like 12 or 13, I used to do these, write these little plays um, and record them into my recorder. But in, in the background on the record player would be Simon and Garfunkel's song, Old Friends from Bookends. And, they were the, and the little playlet was talking about two old friends talking about Robert and John Kennedy. So I wish I, God, I wish I had it somewhere. I wish I could play it for you, but I, God knows where they, they've been. They've gone over the years. Um, but they've always been huge. And then, and then somehow in the eighties, I met them and I ended up in the studio with them while they were recording something. And I don't even remember what they were recording or how I ended up in the studio with them, but they were really cool. I think they'd seen me in, in the King of Comedy and were fans and somehow somebody introduced us or we were in the same place at the same time, but we ended up hanging out and that was really, you know, very cool, and I and I run into them here here and there over the years. Although they, you know, they're kind of separately at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sadly, I wish they'd never broken up, but I I think that's hard for for most you know duos or or bands to stay together. Unlike oh, the Rolling, yeah. unlike the Rolling Stones, who I think are the only ones who've stayed together all these years. So that's sort of just my off the top reflections on Simon and Garfunkel. Let's start at the first one. Let's talk about the concert first. Mm -hmm. All right. So was it, was it a lot of negging? Was it like, please, please, please. Or was this like, cause any, I remember the first concert my dad took me to, 
Uh, we're not, he, the first thing they took me to was Peter, Paul, and Mary. I've talked about it on the podcast, which I did not want to go to. I was forcibly taken seven times um, to wow. see them. Yeah, I know, right? It's how many times can you hear Puff the Magic Dragon? It did get better when I started bringing pot and I would sneak away to this, this little corner of wolf trap and, and smoke, but I would beg my dad to take me to see Motley Crue or like Guns N' Roses, and there was no way. Now, I know Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses are not Simon and Garfunkel. <clears throat> so how, how, did you, did it, how did that happen? And like, were you this huge fan and just obsessed with their music? Uh, like I was with the two bands I mentioned, or like, tell me, take yeah, me my friend that. Diane Adler and I, we were like buddies from Hebrew school in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And we love Simon and Garfunkel. And when we had sleepovers, we'd listen to them, we'd talk about them, we'd obsess about them. And I don't think it was any big sort of push to get her dad, Harry, to take us. He was more than happy. I'm sure he was a fan too. How could you not be a fan of Simon and Garfunkel? There was nothing offensive or intrusive about their music. It was just incredible poetry put to beautiful music with two of the most, you know, melodic voices that just blended beautifully. So who wouldn't want to see them live? Yeah. Yeah. No, completely. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the concert where, where we, you mentioned exactly where it was it was huge. It was, arena at, the it was at the Coliseum. And, and I think I, I'm not sure what the Coliseum in Phoenix was called at that point at that time. Yeah, this is like 1968, 69. I think it was called the Coliseum, but I might be wrong. You, if you want to get that, go into the weeds. You could look it up. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was. I think where they played. You know, the basketball team played, or yeah. you know, there were concerts and events, and that's where that's where we saw them. And I remember the seats being pretty decent. You know, um, I was wearing a, um, a navy blue pleated skirt. And a blue, <laughs> yellow, and white striped turtleneck. I, I love that you remember what you were wearing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Did anything? I, I'm a crier at concerts, and I could see myself being at a at a Simon and Garfunkel show. If they if they hit, I mean, was uh, were there a lot of the the emotional songs on there that yeah, that we I know mean, and love? Yeah, well, I, I, well, whatever songs they had up until then. I mean, when did, when did Bookends come out? I don't remember what year. Bookends came out in 1968, and I love the album Okay, well, then, then for sure that, that was one of the, that was probably the album they were touring with, because that, yes. that would match up to that time. Um, you know, when you're 12, 13 years old, you don't cry like that. You know what I mean? You're not like an emotional rap because you haven't been you <laughs> well, haven't been well no but my you family <laughs> you haven't been through anything i mean i mean music sure. had a great impact on me from the time i was tiny but over the years yes now i might cry over you know hearing old friends but at yeah. that particular time we were just so excited to see i mean we had probably had crushes on simon and garfunkel we were just excited you know it wasn't like you know nothing brought us down Sure. What was the second concert that you saw? I'm curious. Somebody asked me that recently, and I cannot remember. I mean, <laughs> but you I remember what I, you were wearing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I remember the I, I remember the next impact, very impactful concert, which which was Cat Stevens, which oh, was 1972 yeah. um, at Grady Gamage Auditorium um, at ASU at Arizona State University. This what I love about um, about the the record bookends i mean they were already kind of like a a, a pretty 
a pretty popular duo. Like they already had had two years prior sound of silence um, and parsley sage and rosemary time. So they're, they're, they, you know, they were already starting to really like break out. And so at this point you could, like you said, they're playing the arena, uh, you know, in, in Arizona. Um, can you do me a favor? I want to just try to see if we compare that. Like, like what was like, what were some of the first like really big venues you started playing as a comedian that really were like sticking out to you? as like, holy shit, like this is, this is way different than the comedy clubs in New York City or in LA. Um, well, everything, once I left that scene, which was approximately 81 after I did King of Comedy, you know, I would start to perform at um, rock and roll venues. Yeah. Um, I performed in colleges and, you know, some, you know, some performing arts centers I mean, when I performed in London, I performed at the Royal Festival Hall. And for me, wow. that was like, for me, that was, I, I performed there twice. That to me was one of the best experiences in terms of like, you know, the, the glamour of a great venue. Sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've obviously I've, you know, I played a variety of, of sizes, but it's never like, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to play, a, a, you know, not, a, you know, that kind of a <laughs> coliseum. Um, unless I'm opening or I'm with, I'm with somebody, but you know, yeah. I don't, I mean, that doesn't seem even that appealing to me doing what I do. You know, it, I think you would lose a lot of the intimacy and sometimes the sound in a big venue is not so great. I mean, many times I go to Madison square garden and I go, how, how could it be that the sound is so bad here when it's you think like, it's bad. You think it's bad at MSG. I've been to some concerts where I thought it was like, when I saw the Rolling Stones there, um in 97 98 and the, the sound was terrible yeah yeah i've i've well it's I always maybe it just depends on where you're sitting there sometimes but maybe um, i always look at msg as like the it's it's a venue one where every band seems to bring it uh because it is i feel like the venue is more famous than the actual artist that's performing there um i've seen all different variations of concerts um, i'm actually performing there on friday with bill burr so uh, oh, fingers, crossed, fingers crossed I don't eat shit. Uh, I won't. Uh, at least that's what I'm saying to myself in a mantra over and over. But but there is something <laughs> about, but I always feel like there's something about that. I mean, it just depends. Like I saw Tears for Fears there and it was a few months ago before I left for tour. And it was like, it just sounded so great. Um, maybe it's just over the years, they've just fixed it. Maybe. They've heard, they've heard, they heard you talk about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I'm, I'm glad because, you know, when you when you go to a venue like that, well, I, I just saw Bruce Springsteen there. The, the sound was pretty good. It was okay. Yeah, it was, be, it was better than, yeah. The second thing I want to unpack is like you you meeting them. Like, how, tell me how did that go down? I know you had just mentioned it before, but you know what is that like? You're saying you're you're you know you it's probably because of King of Comedy. Um, you know, at that time, I mean, with being at that Scorsese, he's coming off a run of, of his, some of his popular hits from the seventies and, uh, having, you know, De Niro in it. And then you being one of the main characters in that, how, how did that like uh, affect, like, not just who was coming out to see you at shows, but when did you realize that you're like, Oh wait, this actually, this really moved the needle. Oh, oh I, I mean, I knew it moved the needle the minute I got the part because yeah. it was a very coveted role that so many actresses went up for and you know really wanted and so it was kind of a miracle that I, I got cast um a confluence of a lot of wonderful um events that made it happen so yeah i mean 
Do you mind telling me? Do you mind telling me some of those events? I, I'm just such. A, it's like one of my favorite movies, um, and I just think you know. It's like I think, like I said, when when you know, it's I love these moments, and I love like this this like you could like kind of compare this to like Simon and Garfunkel when doing the record like Sound <laughs> of Silence. That's the record that just changed their career. Where it's like Kings of Comedy was for you, just changed the trajectory of your career. And like, how did that go down? The audition process was it difficult or? No, okay, no, what, no, it wasn't difficult. I just, but getting the audition was difficult because my agent at the time at ICM kept telling me he had gotten, he was working on getting me the uh, audition, but never did. And then my friend Lucy Webb, who was part of a comedy team with my friend um, Cheryl Henry at the comedy store, she had auditioned for it. And she said, you're so perfect for this. She goes, I'm just going to call Sis Gorman, the casting director, myself for you. And I said, okay. And she did. And then I set up the audition myself, basically, through my friend Lucy. And um, it was up at the Chateau Marmont. Nice. The first audition, all the auditions until I came to New York. And um, I came in and I, I read for her. But was she, what they were really looking for was somebody who could improvise, which I was, you know, pretty good at from doing my performing, my live performing. And she was like, Mm, she was sort of, I think she was sort of stunned because I don't think she'd seen anybody do what I did. Yeah. And she said, okay, I want you to come back and meet Marty. And so I came back the next day and I met, I think I met Marty and Bobby the next day. Maybe I, maybe I read with Bobby. And then they came to see me perform at the comedy store, which was amazing. And nice. um, cool. I think they just wanted to see how I, what I was like live too. And then I didn't hear from him for a month. And my friend, Paul Mooney, I was getting freaked out. And Paul Mooney said, come down to Palm Springs with me. He was performing there. So like for a weekend and I came back and I had like three messages from the, the, you know, the, the production of King of Comedy saying they wanted to fly me to New York for my final audition with um, Jerry Lewis. So I was like, sometimes when you just let things go, they come back around. So oh, they flew, yeah. flew me yeah, to New yeah. York. Um, and that was the most nerve wracking part of the audition process was working with Jerry because he was, you know, sort of a misogynist and he didn't really, I could, I don't think he could understand what a woman like I was doing in comedy. Yeah. Um, cause I, I kind of broke out of the, to, the norm and the stereotypical stand up comedy of the, of the time. And, um, so, but the audition went well and a day went by and I was sitting in my hotel room and Sis Corman, the casting director, called me and said, you've got the part. Nice. And I screamed and went crazy. And then I went <laughs> downstairs to the hotel and Marty and Bobby were walking down the street and I ran up behind them and I scared the shit out of them. I said, thank <laughs> you, thank you. And I hugged them and they were like, so it sort of set the tone <laughs> for the yeah. character and the role. So that was, it was just, you know, kind of just couldn't have been more perfect. Oh, I love it. I love oh, that. Cool. Uh, it's such a great movie. It's, you did, you killed the role. So, yeah, just just like bringing it back to Simon and Garfunkel, them killing bookends. Let's talk <laughs> about this record. Um, is this your favorite Simon and Garfunkel record, or or would do you have any others, or or even? And I'll even throw this in there. You can even say Graceland, and I'd be okay with that, even though it's not a full Garfunkel. Simon and I would say I would say that the, the the three the three albums we just discussed were in, in total my my favorite of of theirs, but bookends certainly is like, yeah I I I I would say yeah but I love parts of Sage Rosemary and Time a lot too, 
So yeah. some between that and 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 bookends, those are I, I'd say my two favorite albums of theirs. So maybe maybe right up there with some of my favorite albums of all times. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Really? Like, what What would you say, like, if you had to pick, like, your favorite record of all time, then where would you put bookends in there? Would you put that in the top five, top 10, top 20? I'd say, I'd say top 10. Yeah. But I, I mean, I'm, I, I would have to sit down and really look at my list of favorite albums. You know, Joni Mitchell yeah. is probably yeah. my number one. Laura Nero, Stevie Nicks. Um, Aretha Franklin, Tina yes. Turner, yeah, the Rolling Stones, there you go, Bruce Springsteen, um, just to name, and Cat Stevens, early Cat Stevens, but those are just a few. I mean, I I, I wasn't prepared to give you my, my no, answer, no, no, no. I, I Simon I, I, and Garfunkel are definitely in that, you know, milieu. Question: Would they be as popular if the band's name was Garfunkel and Simon? <laughs> Probably not. It doesn't have the, the doesn't, rhythmically. Yeah. It doesn't work. Simon yeah. and Garfunkel. Yeah, is, is the way it, it was meant to be. It's too were, semantic. It's I'm too sh- semantic. Then it's like well, Garfunkel. I'm, it's not bad. It's just that it doesn't have the it doesn't have the rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, this was actually. I think this is the second uh, Simon and Garfunkel record we've done on the podcast. So for me, my mom had Bridge Over Bridge uh, Bridge Over or Under Troubled Water. Uh, over. over Troubled Water. Yeah. And and I used to listen to that song like and I as a singer and a comedian, you know, but, but first at that age, just being so fascinated with music, I used to listen to that over and over. So this is really only my second, I don't even know. Yeah, my second record uh, of Simon and Garfunkel that I've listened to all the way through and uh, very fascinating. I want to give the, everybody just so before we get into talking about some of the songs, this is the fourth studio record from Simon and Garfunkel released April 1968. Like we mentioned before, they rose to fame two years prior with Sound of Silence and Parsley Sage and Rosemary and Time. And the soundtrack album for The Graduate, Bookends, oh. is a, which is another, I mean, that, I mean, that's another one of those things where it's like, oh. I mean, listen, Mike Nichols, a brilliant director. Dustin Hoffman killed the part. Uh, everything about The Graduate was great. But would that movie be as popular as it was if it didn't have Mrs. Robinson, that soundtrack by Simon and Garfunkel, I mean, it's it's the perfect merging of of music and 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 film, which is like bringing up Scorsese again. He's another guy that always nails it. Something like Goodfellas is the per. I mean, every song in Goodfellas, it's like it's made for that. No one ever will be able to use the piano outro from Layla again because because he did it 
perfectly. And I think, I think same thing, the, the, the chasing scene in the graduate with the, the guitar. I mean, there's, it, they just nailed it. And um, yeah. So, so the, the, the difference, the difference is for um, the graduate, the music was done for the film. I mean, Scorsese yeah. always picks existing music, which is fine, but to, to sit and collaborate and not only make a brilliant film standing on its own, but then collaborate with the likes of Simon and Garfunkel and have this, you know, soundtrack as if it was a, almost a, you know, a musical as well as a theatrical yeah. film, a, dr- a drama, a comedy. I mean, that was kind of unheard of. And, and, and that was very, it was a precursor to everybody who tries to do that now. And music is in everything. Everything. Yeah. Um, and some successfully and some, I think not, but that to me is like absolutely the pinnacle of that collaboration. Yeah. Oh, completely. Uh, and, and for the people that just don't know, Bookends is a concept record that explores a life journey from childhood to old age. Side one of the album marks successive stages in life, the theme serving as bookends to the life cycle. Side two largely consists of previously unreleased singles and unused material for the graduate soundtrack. Simon's lyrics concern youth, disillusionment, relationships, old age, and morality, and a disc jockey and pioneer of FM rock radio. Pete for I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck that name up Jeremiah so if you want to correct me for for Natalie for Natalie once said bookends represents a once in a career convergence of musical personal and, so, and societal forces that place Simon and Garfunkel squarely at the center of the cultural zeitgeist of the '60s uh, and Rolling Stone credited the record with striking a chord among lonely adrift young adults near the end of the decade. Um, wow. I mean, that's those are pretty and there again i mean look at the difference between you know music that was released then and now it's like there was a context and mm-hmm. there were liner notes and somebody great always wrote something that was you know nat hentoff always wrote about jazz there were people that you know were were also as as you know well versed being critics and writers um, in the music world as the actual songwriters. And there was there was that connection. And you, you just don't have that now. A, a couple of singles get dropped, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the world of Apple music. And you're like, and you can't, you can't find the genesis of the artist or what motivated them. And also it's like a one-off. So you, there's no, there's no arc to the story. I mean, what a shame, what a, what a, what a loss for yeah. the world of music. Yeah, there, there's something about uh, Simon and Garfunkel where I I feel you know, and I and I'm gonna, I'm curious if you do as well. I think they are they're, they're they're iconic. Simon and Garfunkel is a name that you hear. It's as big as a name to, in music as, as someone like Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles. And and um, despite them them being in the same tier of popularity in the in the late '60s. They, nobody really kind of puts them up to that. Do you attribute that to their difference, the differences getting in the way of getting to that level? Or, or for some reason, because I just don't feel like they're on the same level as the Beatles, but they should be. And like, I'm just wondering, why, what do you attribute that to? Well, I don't think they had the, the charisma or the sex appeal of the, the Stones or the Beatles or certain bands. You know, they were more like intellectual and I think that that didn't resonate in the way that would make somebody superstars. It just made them more kind of culty, 
culty superstars, but not 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 the kind of thing where women are going to throw themselves at you. You know, they weren't they didn't have that particular vibe. Um, so I just think that's I think that's sort of like you know the differentiation between those two. But I think that musically, I think they're. And also, I mean, they, it, you know, like the Beatles, I mean, they did a lot quickly. They were very, you know, prolific. And then they separated and fell apart. And there was there was that sort of, you know, you know, fight and, and disillusion. And, and, and I think that also leads people like, well, you know, there, there's a, there was a time and a place. And maybe it doesn't have the huge, you know. Yeah ongoing impact that certain you know bands and, and performers have i mean so there was have... a tension between them and uh, uh oftentimes you know superstars especially duos you know that tension creates great art a lot of times uh but i was just reading that uh they considered the sound of silence a rush job um oh, which kind of blows my mind uh it was oh. the first time after that in the follow-up where simon insisted on total control in aspects of recording so I was just curious about like, you know, partnerships with you or obviously acting in a movie. It's an ensemble. You have to like kind of subvert your ego a little bit. But then with your stand up, I mean, you can control the whole thing. I mean, you're the writer, potentially director, executive producer, all those things. So right, just wonder right. how you balance that over the years with your various different roles and well, I, I like it when I get hired as an actor and I don't have any of that responsibility. So for yeah. me, I don't care. I mean instinctively i kind of know if something is uh, if i'm overacting or, or or not hitting it but hopefully you can tell somebody i probably i probably would be more confident now than i was 20 or 30 years ago in telling a director i think that's over the top but sometimes that's what the role calls for and that's what they want from you so if you don't give that to them they they're not happy and you could get fired so sometimes you have to sacrifice what you know will not be the perfect outcome um, but in terms of just showing up and memorizing your lines and hitting your mark and really being in the moment, I, I really enjoy that. And it's a break from all the, the pressure um, of, of live performing and writing and, and having to be completely autonomous. It's, it's not easy sometimes. Yeah, totally. Um, I want to ask you a question because, you know, talking about you, you know, you were a staple of the comedy store, like how, like, and you were there during the years where Mitzi was, you know, I mean, I was very lucky enough to, to be able to perform in front of her. I did not get passed. I was very young <laughs> in the game. Um, and she was, and she was quite old at that time and it wasn't really as sharp as she had been. And, uh, but still to be able to see her and it's just knowing the history of it, what was your process like getting into the comedy store? How hard was it? Did she immediately see, I could see her just seeing you and being like, I like you, you're in. Was it like um, that? No, she, I don't, I think she was confused by me because I was doing something. I wasn't self-deprecating. Um, I was like, sort of like post-feminist. And for her, that was very like, what is she doing? And Paul Mooney, who was my mentor, took me everywhere. So he brought me to the, to the store and, you know, he kept pushing Mitzi to put me on. So eventually she did. And then, of course, the belly room, you know, was a big launching pad for me and a, a couple of other women. And that made a big difference because it was a, a little incubator to do what I did, which was super offbeat um without the pressure of the original room um or the or the main room and 
that was, you know, that was very helpful. And then eventually, I think she accepted me. I guess, I guess she liked me. We never really had much of a relationship. I didn't, I, mean, I found her like strange and amusing, but <laughs> I didn't really like lean on Mitzi for like my feedback or confidence or anything. I was like, this woman couldn't possibly have any input to what I'm doing and understand what I'm doing. So I was just like, Hey, Mitzi, hi, hi, you know, but I wasn't like, didn't you think Mitzi was at a good set? Nah. And I was like, I never did that with any of the, of the club owners. I just did my own thing. I was like, yeah. I'm here. I'm using you. I'll get out of here as soon as possible. <laughs> and thank you for the stage and for the, eventually the 20 bucks a set and 20. Oh, wow. I think it's still that. I but no, it may, I think it went down to 15 for a while. And then it's, and then maybe I think it's settled around 20, 25, 30. That sounds about right. Mirror. I mean, maybe yeah. it was 15. I don't remember what, but after we we after the comics, you know, went on strike, that that's when we finally got started getting paid. Yeah, and 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 you with Mooney, I I love that he was your mentor. Like how because you all seemingly on the outside, you know, you would think it was so different. Like like how did that come about? How did you suddenly get pulled into the the stratosphere of arguably one of my one of my favorite comics? You know, uh, like ever one of the realest comics in the game, to be honest. Well, I when I when I. Very first went to an open mic night. It was at a club in Beverly Hills called the Ye, the Ye Little Club, mm-hmm. um, where Joan Rivers used to do Monday nights. And it was like kind of a jazz venue. It was just like, it was just a, you know, you walked in, there was a bar and you walked back and the stage was there. And, you know, it was like narrow. Um, and the woman who brought me there was this woman named Judy Vallon, who was one of my clients when because I, I was a manicurist in Beverly Hills. And so when I went to beauty school, she was one of my clients and she was, um, she was sort of a, you know, lounge singer. Her parents had been in vaudeville and she left her family back in Ohio and came back to Hollywood to try to make it. And so she'd come over to my apartment one night when I had my friends who I'd met at the Rocky Horror Show, the live version in 1974 up at, um, the Roxy on Sunset. Oh, wow. And I was putting together my little rudimentary first performance. And so people would, friends would come over and I'd get up and do my act. And she said, I'm, you, I've got to take you to the E Little Club and you've got to meet Paul Mooney. And also that same night, I met my friend Lotus Weinstock, who had been Lenny Bruce's last girlfriend, fiance. And she also did stand up and was a songwriter. So I met the two of them and Mooney and Lotus knew each other. And they both came over to me after my first set at, at the Ye Little Club, which I did I did very well, very happy with my set. And they were just like super like excited. And Mooney took me aside and said, Bernhard, you're a cigarette come to life. They're gonna put you <laughs> they're gonna put you through hell in a pair of kerosene drawers. <laughs> but he just took me under his wing, which he did with a lot of people. And um, we became fast friends uh, and, and along with Lotus Weinstock who would have me over for dinner. And she was just a totally like from the whole peace and love generation. And she was not competitive. She was just so loving and giving. And she had a daughter who's now a very successful songwriter, um, Lily Hayden. So those were my two friends in LA and my two mentors that I, I never would have made it in the business without them. It was a very unusual um, situation. And Mooney started taking me everywhere with him, you know, to all the little hole in the wall clubs where they'd have open mic night. 
Rusty's bagel. <laughs> this guy, this crazy comic named Rusty Blitz. He played the grave digger in Young Frankenstein. And he oh. would, you'd have, you'd go there. It was like on La Brea, way down. And in order to get a, get on, you'd have to buy a bagel with cream cheese, and, and <laughs> then he'd put you bad. on. Which was not, it was a fair exchange. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's like open mics you used to have to pay $5 and get nothing to at least get a bagel. Was it a good bagel? It was a good bagel. It was a good okay. bagel. So, you know, I, I started there and I was working during the day as a manicurist to support myself in Beverly Hills. And Mooney just kept bringing me everywhere and pushing me. And like, we'd go to the, we'd go to the club and, in, in, you know, and um, I forgot what it's called, um, the, um, Oh God! It was the Black Club, where it used to be. Now it's the Post Office. It was a fabulous club, and a woman, um, the, the hostess was named Cardilla de Milo. Um, I, I can't think of the name of the club right now. But By the way, was- I'm just gonna stop you. I want you to keep going, but you are so good with remembering names. Like you, you remember first and last, and and it's just it's incredible. Only certain people, because I, I mean, I've 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 committed certain people to memory, you know, yeah, and and yeah, they yeah. were such a huge part of my life. But going performing at the Black Club was to me like the most you know essential experience because when you get in front of a black audience, they're the most they're they're honest, but they're present and they don't oh, yeah. they're really there and they really listen. And I and I would always kill at the black clubs. And I was like, this is, these are my people. They understood me, you know. And and Mooney was there with me, so it was like the Parisian room on La Brea. It was an mm. amazing club. It was super cool, sophisticated. You know, people went there to dance, to drink cocktails, to listen to music and, and comedy. Um, it was a real throwback. So that's how everything got going. And, and so Paul Mooney is, I give him full 100% credit for keeping me steady, for giving me the confidence, believing in me and helping me craft my material and just, you know, keep forging ahead until you know i got really into i'm telling i got king of comedy but he got me on the richard pryor show with everybody and doing the sketches he got me on the dollar 98 beauty contest he got me on everything he was just like he was like my agent my manager and wow. he was unbelievable yeah he didn't get you on roseanne though no, he didn't give me a Roseanne, but I mean, at that point, I was already well established. Yeah, yeah. rock and rolling. By I that met point. Ro- I met Roseanne uh, and Tom Arnold at Sue Menger's house. My agent at the time, um, super agent Sue Menger's, and I'd never met Roseanne before because she kind of came on the heels of me leaving that scene. And we were talking, and and you know, we kind of hit it off. Um, and then about two weeks later, they reached out to me and said, do you want to come on and play Tom Arnold's, you know, fiance, wife? I said, yeah, why not? Great. And then from there, it turned into, you know, to the rest is history. You know, I did many seasons, many episodes. And um, that was another very positive experience at the time. That's incredible. Yeah. I was going to ask you before you asked the question, JT, what, what was the best advice or, or if any that, that Paul gave you? Because he seemed like as there was a, such a a free spirit on stage, where almost every great comic that we love, the Chris Rocks, the Dave Chappelle's, the 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 guys, you know, and like Richard Pryor, these are the he was the guy they looked up to. So yeah, well, obviously, he, I mean, they borrowed you know freely from him. Um, he basically would always just say, "Don't let them see you crying in public," because you know sometimes I'd, he'd come to the improv and I'd be sitting at the bar. 
not drinking, I never drank, but waiting to go on, you know, and not having a time slot. And one night he came in, and I was just like, I was just so depressed. And he took me outside and he just said, burn hard, pull it together. Don't let them bring you down. That's what they want. They want to, they want to break your spirit. And after that, I was like, you're right. That's exactly what they want to do. And then I never let them do it again. Wow. So that was the best advice anybody could, could have given me in the actual moment it was happening. That's so true. It's so, it's so funny because I'm dealing as, as a comic, regardless of how funny you are, it doesn't make a difference sometimes. And, and you still are getting, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to see what you have because you're always looking at like, well, why not this or why not that? Like you were saying, just sitting there at the improv in California, especially Los Angeles, more than any other place for comedy is so focused on the fame that that they'll like uh, uh, the super funny comics. Oh, you guys are over here. But this guy who's got credits and on this TV show that has the same five minute act or 10 minute act they've been doing for 10 years. Let's put them up. And it's just right. it's, it's quite difficult. So and that's actually how I was feeling today. So I really appreciate hearing. I'm that good. From, I'm glad. It's always um, nice that you can pass on sage advice from somebody who was as brilliant and caring as, as Mooney. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. I love it. I love it. Um, all right, let's do. Let's talk a little bit more about about Paul Simon and and Garfunkel, and we'll get you out of here. Um, who do you feel took the torch from them? Uh, is there a modern day uh, Paul Simon? Um, you know, uh, someone. It doesn't have to be a music duo or or acting or or it can be anything. Is there somebody that you think works well that just like uh, Simon and Garfunkel? Well, I'm sure there is, but I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of people, you know, I mean, can I name them off the top of my head? No, but of course these people have influenced generations and generations of, of, of musicians. So there is, I'm sure a myriad of very talented singer songwriters in that vein. Maybe but- Father John Misty. No, no, because he's not nearly as, I'm so. talking like, yeah, it's gotta be, it doesn't, I'm talking somebody these are these are i, I mean you're, you're talking you're talking rock and roll hall of fame first ballot no yeah. no i actually so then to answer your question i don't think there is and i don't think i think it would be very very difficult in this you know environment to make a name for yourself in that way there's just just the music world is saturated streaming has destroyed it i mean that you can't like i said i've already summed it up so i'm not going to be redundant the bottom line is it'll never be what it was 
in the 60s, 70s, and to a certain extent, the 80s. Um, I think really until street, I think until music really, you know, switched up to streaming and 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 became so truncated, um, there's really there's it's never going to be it'll never be the same. I think you said it perfectly earlier. I mean, dude, yeah. the, there's a different time, different time where you. I mean, now everything in music uh, and and entertainment, tr- truthfully, is about image. MTV was the beginning of that video killed the radio star and right. where someone like right. where someone like Paul Simon dude Garfunkel is like look Paul Simon's adorable you put some suction cups on him put him on the <laughs> on the window of a car and he's a beanie baby um yeah. <laughs> Garfunkel on the other hand is you know he's got the hair the, the receding hairline he's not a bad looking guy but compared to the the artists that are making music now it's rare when you are a very un, I'm not saying unattractive but just not you know, model-esque. Everybody now feels like it's like the high cheekbones, it's the face doesn't move, and there's auto-tuning and all this stuff. You had real talent with these two guys. And then yeah. you had arguably one of the greatest songwriters of the 20th century, who was like the heir, he's like a Billy Joel, the heir to the great American songbook. Right. You know, is Paul right. Simon has is, is constantly been involved with, you know, and, and that's even before Graceland, yeah. you know, and then he did Graceland. So I just don't think you'll ever have somebody um like both of these guys where their talent is just surpassed the image and and when the image they really don't give a shit nobody ever saw what they look like because there wasn't maybe they saw them in rolling stone but that's about it um yeah well that's 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 what i'm saying they performed on you know on music shows or probably like you know dick cavett or the tonight show or snl yeah yeah well that was much later yeah i'm talking about you know. The early days. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if Simon and Garfunkel ever performed together on SNL. I think it was just Paul was on Paul. it constantly. Um, yeah. But yeah. anyway, I think, I think that you know, I think we've summed it up. I think that you know, it was a beautiful time for culture, and certainly the peak for you know, pop rock music. I think it was it established you know the bedrock for whatever anybody's doing today or will do in the future. Yeah. And I mean, that's my kind of final statement on it. Sure. I think, I think you're looking at someone like Simon and Garfunkel, just looking at some of the stuff that they've gotten or they won, they won nine uh, Grammy awards, four hall of fame awards, a lifetime achievement award, the Grammy hall of fame tracks, including bridge over troubled water, miss, miss Robinson, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. the sound of silence. They were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1990. So that's, that's first ballot. That's like, that's not, that's like the beginning of the rock and roll hall of fame and the vocal group hall of fame in 2006. And they are among the best selling music artists having sold more than 100 million records worldwide. That is now that is like, I didn't, I didn't know that I would have thought Paul Simon, but that's, I mean, dude, that's huge. A hundred million records for them. That's like, I mean, I think the Beatles that is, are, yeah. That is like, amazing. And and the artists that they have influenced and you could, um, I mean, not just even they're, they're the people that were with them, like the Crosby, Stills and Nash and the, but, but Elliot Smith and Nick Drake, Jackson Brown, Billy Joel, who James Taylor, Melissa Etheridge, Christ, I would say, you know, and then contemporaries, like I said, probably they pushed the people like John Denver and Neil Diamond. Mm -hmm, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know who's, who's better. Who's who, what two voices work so well together 
that you know I, I i don't i don't know like the beach boys but there were like five of them yeah i no i think they were really they they were the pinnacle of of harmony and and poetry so it'll it'll never be like that again yeah it won't uh, is there um, any is there any facts, JT, that or anything we got to we got to nail before we get her out of here? Yeah, like, I, know I mean, honestly, it's, Mrs. Robinson has the majority of it. Is the first rock and roll song to win record of the year at the Grammy Awards in '69. Really? Um, it almost wasn't called Mrs. Robinson. It was uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, but uh, with the graduate, yeah, the same, that was the same ring to it. Yeah, right. And they would have won an Oscar. I mean, this is debatable, but they would have won an Oscar for best song from a movie, but it wasn't nominated because Simon and Garfunkel never filled out the forms to get it considered. So that was a nice little factoid. Um, Oh my God, I can't believe that. Can you believe that? They would obviously have won that. I mean, that's... What what did win? Yeah, find that out, dude. Well, doesn't doesn't Paul Simon have an EGOT? I'm pretty sure he's got like an EGOT. Right? Yeah, outside of the outside. I feel like he's got EGOT vibes. <laughs> you know, uh, talk to the animals from Dr. Doolittle. There it was is. The winner. There it is. A <laughs> oh my God, that is crazy. It was the 60s. Stop. We weren't um, paying attention, said Simon. <laughs> Jesus Dude. Christ, that is wild. Hilarious. I, well, and then also, I remember the Lemonheads covered this song too, yeah. uh, which introduced it to like, you know, the Gen, Gen X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evan Dando and. I mean, Hazy Shade of Winter is, you know, the Bengals recorded that and Less Than Zero. I mean, there's a lot of great shit on here. There's a lot of great. I mean, but you just get get, take aside the fact that it's then you find out it's a concept record, but just great, great music. Um, You know, like and I know I asked this, um, but it's like, is is this. Is this just a, a great record for 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 Paul uh, Simon and and Garfunkel, or is this you know a great record for the history of mankind? Is it you know what I mean? Well, I think I think all those early albums are, are definitely the top echelon of of all records. You know for sure. I mean, <laughs> not just for them for music. They yeah. they had a sound that was completely unique. Um. And they were on their path and they stayed on their path. And that's that's why we still want to talk about them and listen to them and, and why they still have such impact. Do we know why they broke up? I mean, besides Paul Simon probably take it with me. I know he took control and, and kind of started writing the majority of the music. But do you have anything on that, JT, of what when it ended? Because I just have this thing saying that he thanked him at the tw- 2001 uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist induction and how he regretted ending our friendship. And I mm-hmm. hope that someday before we die, we will make peace with each other. Oh, so this was like a bad breakup. Yeah. Ugh. Had a troubled relationship leading to artistic disagreements and the breakup in 70. Final studio album was Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, released that January and became one of the world's best-selling albums. And following their split, Simon hit big on both the singles chart. I mean, he had his solo career at that point. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. That is what a crazy, if they're having, they're, you know, literally they're really having, <laughs> there's, there's, there's troubled water. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. There, there was troubled it. water and they swam yeah. to shore. Yeah. yeah. I Two mean, different banks. It's exactly. just such a, it's just such a it's such a bummer. It's such a bummer that, you know, we've got like we've had we have this whole thing with Paul Simon on the podcast, Sandra, where um 
where we were can i say it i don't we 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 did research on graceland for another record it was a it was a los lobos record and there was a song on that record that that they helped uh they that that paul simon kind of didn't didn't totally uh they worked together on a on a song for graceland that that he did not credit them and so we had started a very big like you know like F Paul Simon uh, thing on here. <laughs> now it's been, it's been changed throughout the years because the music, uh, but it's like a weekend, but what we've read about him is that he is this very controlling, you know, and that's listen to be, to be successful. <laughs> there are a lot of, you have to have those blinders on. Now I'm not saying that he, you know, is is the reason that it ended because i know that the the ego from 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 both of them is definitely contributing to it but do you think that they had more in them or do you think paul was just that driving force like did garfunkel ever put out a solo record at all yeah yeah he did he had that one great he had one hit it was a good song and i can't remember what what the name of it was but if you look it up um Did you figure okay. it out? I didn't even know that Garfunkel. All I know is that yeah. Garfunkel is probably one of the uh, Garfunkel and uh, Oates are are the two right. best sidekicks, uh-huh. but uh, but of of all time. And if you can go at any Halloween costume as either one of them, there is a very good chance you will be in the top five of any uh-huh. Halloween contest. Uh-huh. Um, but did I love see, it. Did I, you see the song? Yeah, the, did you figure it out, JT? I have uh, his album Breakaway was released in 1975. There was a single from that, that album. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up on that yeah. note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they reunited. Okay, well, don't worry John about what reunited. Tell me what the, what the hit was. So yeah, Art Garfunkel's album Breakaway is the second solo album by Art Garfunkel. So we can find the first one. Um, just put the but... top, the to- his his top solo. Um, yeah, just, just type in Gar. Just go into Spotify and type in Garfunkel. It's coming up. Here, I'll do Angel right Claire. No. Solo studio album by Art Garfunkel. While you hear, while you I want the that... song, not the yeah, album. I got it. I got it. Bright Traveling Eyes. Boy? Bright Eyes. Oh. It's Bright Eyes, Art Garfunkel. Wow. It's not Bright Eyes? No. Einzug, Flarfen, Dirk. This is all on here. I'm looking up Garfunkel. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll be, I'll right. leave it up to you. You guys. No, no, no. Okay. I got Breakaway. I got Scissors Cut. Those are a few of his records here. Let's, before we get into do the plugs, I'm so sorry. It fell apart at the end. You loved us and then and it all just went I, it was, The love is still there. Thank you. All right. Um, I ask everybody this, but before we ask these questions, um, you have Joe's pub coming up December 26th to the 31st. I love that. I rent cars literally at the Hertz a block away. Not even. Yes. Well, that's great news. I'm glad you do that, but drive over to see me at Joe's pub in my new show, my holiday extravaganza. Easy listening is the name of my show. So nice. maybe I'll even cover a Simon and Garfunkel tune now that I've been inspired here. Love it. And um, and every year I put together, you know, a, a fabulous set list for the show. And, you know, of course, do a year-end wrap-up of my own life and the world and tie it together in an optimistic, you know, forging ahead, you know, vibe that everybody needs now more than ever. So come and, and be together with me and my... Fabulous band, the Sandy Land Squad Band. 
Oh, I love and, it. Um, nice. Come and, and celebrate with me. Incredible venue too. It's like so many different people that I that I know, comedians, uh, and and just like I mean, Bridget Everett. So many great performers have been there. Uh, incredible venue, and 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 like I said to the Fleece Army out there, if you're in New York or in New Jersey or even Pennsylvania, fucking drive up, go to see this show. I will be there. And can I get a picture? Absolutely. Yes, right, I'll be. I, I come out afterwards and sign merch, so you can come up to the merch table. And, and, and get a get a get a selfie. Okay. All right. Thank you guys That's so much. Hold on, wait, we gotta ask you. I gotta ask you these four quite these three quick questions. Right, and we'll right. get you out of here. What's your <laughs> favorite song on the record? Favorite song on Bookends? Yes. Yeah. Or old friends for sure. Okay. Least favorite song on the record. Um I don't think I have a, I think I love them all. I don't think I have a least favorite song. Like I said, it tells a whole story. Yes. So they all work together. Okay. In concert. I ask everybody this next question. Can you fuck to this record? No. No. This is not a, this is not a sexy album. It's just a, an emotional album. And then final, <laughs> one, final question. What's your elevator pitch to get someone to listen to this record? Oh, it'll just take you on some sort of a fabulous, like little, you know, journey around to me in New York City it kind of encapsulates the feeling of walking through Central Park in the fall and you know the leaves are kind of just you know turning and blowing around you and and you're connected to life and that right now is so essential yeah I I, I agree with exactly what you said I listened to this record walking around New York City uh since I've gotten back and I mean it definitely it definitely adds a vibe and uh and I, I just can't thank you enough for coming on. I mean, this was so thank great. Thank you for having on me. So many levels. I will see you between December twenty-sixth and the thirty, most likely the twenty-sixth, maybe twenty-seventh. But I will okay. be there. And so thank you so much for coming on, Don. Thank you. Thank you guys. You see it. you soon. Ooh, I told you it was a goodie. Sandra G. Bernhard on Instagram, Sandra Bernhard on Twitter. Uh, listen to Sandy Land Show on Sirius XM's Radio Andy Channel 102. And this year, she's ending 2023 in New York City at Joe's Pub with 10 shows over six glorious nights, December 26th through the 31st, debuting brand new material. Go to SandraBernhard.com for ticket information, and we will also drop the link in our show notes. How about new music? We've got Australian folk rock duo Luluk, and you're listening to the title track Diamonds from the 2023 record. All right? Listen to that, and if you want to play a song or you want us to play a song on our podcast of your music, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com, and we will play it. Next week, it is The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. I think it's important from 1965. Dig into it, and we'll talk to you later, kiddos. On the road with at the with its Said you shouldn't come in here, so what a chance, surely he knows. We said nothing on stage that night, just played how gentle is strong, too. It's all a dream. They took us in the crowd, no problem at all. It's all a
Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Next Chapter Podcasts.